welcome to Mars Messina Presents. I am Mars Messina, and today is Saturday, January 29th, 2022. Our focus for episode 42 is a man named Albino Luciani, who became the so-called September Pope, Pope John Paul I. We will learn about his life and investigate his untimely and controversial death. On August 26, 1978, white smoke billowed from the chimney of the Sistine Chapel of Vatican City, the Roman Catholic Church's own city-state surrounded by Rome, Italy. This white smoke signified that Albino Luciani, Cardinal of Venice, had been elected the 263rd Pope of the Church. Taking the name John Paul I, Luciani's 33-day papacy was the 10th shortest of all time and the briefest since Leo XI's in the early 17th century. Just 33 days after being elected Pope, the 65-year-old pontiff was dead. Albino Luciani was born on October 17, 1912, in Forno di Canale, now called Canale de Gordo, in Belluno, a province of the Veneto region in northern Italy. He was the son of Giovanni Luciani, a bricklayer and reportedly an atheist communist. And that word communist is not in the way that Americans think of communist. It's more of a populist that um, Mr. Luciani apparently was. And his wife, Bortola Tancon, a devout Catholic. Albino was followed by two brothers, Federico and Eduardo, and a sister, Antonia. Poverty-stricken, the Luciani parents both had to work. Albino was painfully, painfully aware that so many other boys around him were orphaned, starving, and abused. And if you look further into this story, there's some harrowing images out of young Luciana's um, childhood uh, that may have really formed him and um, made him the great priest he was. Luciani, uh, Albino Luciani, he knew Although that his family had its own trials, he himself was very fortunate in comparison to the other children in the region. In 1922, at age 10, he was awestruck when a Capuchin friar came to his village to preach Lenten sermons. From that moment, he decided that he wanted to become a priest and so he went to his father to ask for permission. His father agreed and said to him, I hope that when you become a priest, you will be on the side of the workers, for Christ himself would have been on their side. His father was also relieved that by young Albino's decision, because becoming a priest would ensure a roof over his son's head, food on the table, and care when he grew old. Albino Luciani was ordained a priest in 1935, appointed deputy director of the seminary in the Belluno Diocese. He taught moral theology, canon law, and sacred art. He was deeply concerned with the teaching of church doctrine and wrote Catechetica, in Bricciole, which means catechism in crumbs. And he wrote this in 1949. Um, and the reason he wrote it was to instruct less educated Roman Catholics. And we're going to get a little bit more into why he would do this, why he felt so strongly about educating poor people and the less educated. And yes, part of that had to do with... Um, what he saw as a child in his father, but there was something else going on in the church at the time. 
1958, Luciani was appointed Bishop of Vittorio Veneto. He was made Archbishop of Venice in 1969, and he became a Cardinal in 1973. In 1976, he published a creative work called the Illustrissimi, Illustrissimi, I believe is the pronunciation, or um, in English, To the Illustrious Ones. It's a compilation of letters addressed both to historical figures such as Jesus and Mark Twain, but also to fictional characters such as those in Charles Dickens' The Pickwick Papers. Father Luciani seemed to be exactly what most Catholics pray their leaders to be. He was warm, compassionate, genuinely happy to be with ordinary people. A man of obvious faith who didn't wear his piety on his sleeve or take himself too seriously. Now, 1978 was a tragic year for the Vatican. In March of 1978, Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro, a close friend of Pope Paul VI, was kidnapped by the Red Brigades. On April 20th, Aldo Moro directly appealed to Paul VI to intervene like Pope Pius XII had when Professor Giuliano Vasali was in the same situation. Pope Paul VI who was the Pope in March of 78, he begged the Red Brigades to let Moro go free. On May 9th, 1978, the remains of Aldo Moro were found in a car in Rome. He was shot 10 times. A heartbroken Paul VI presided over his friend's state funeral and the mass. Shortly thereafter, Paul Paul VI himself died on August 6, 1978. And tragedy would strike again on September 28th, and we're about to address that in a moment. On August 21st, four days before the start of the conclave electing a new pope, since Paul VI had now died, the Archbishop of Fortaleza, Brazilian Cardinal Aloiso Lorscheider gave a blueprint for the ideal candidate for the next Pope. In quote, he says, a man of hope. He should not try to impose Christian solutions on non-Christians. He should be sensitive to social problems, and he should be a man who fulfills his ministry with patience and readiness to enter into dialogue. The new Pope should be, above all, a good spiritual father, a good pastor. He must respect and re encourage the collegiality of the bishops. In what was one of the shortest conclaves ever, Luciani was elected Pope. A cardinal needs 75 popes to be, I'm sorry, <laughs> he doesn't need 75 popes, he needs 75 votes to be elected Pope. And what that means is that's two thirds plus one to get the majority. On the first ballot, Luciani had 23 votes. In the second round, 53 votes. And then in the third, he had 92 votes. And before this, he had informed the papal conclave that he did not want to be elected and if elected, he would decline the papacy because Luciani knew before going into the conclave of August 1978 that there was considerable talk about him. In the end, however, he felt compelled to offer the same yes as he had when he was named the Patriarch of Venice. He was the new Pope, yet he begged for a fourth ballot because he he couldn't face it. He couldn't, it couldn't possibly be right. Okay. And so a fourth ballot was cast and it showed that he had received 102 votes. If you search for these numbers online, there might be slight differences, but they all point to a clear majority vote for Luciani. And his papal reign began 
on August 26, 1978. As Pope, he pioneered the simplification of the papacy by dropping the royal we. He declined coronation with the papal tiara and discontinued use of the sedia gestatoria or the portable throne. According to some biographers, crowds in St. Peter's Square were often surprised to see him wearing simple priest garments or even a golf shirt and long shorts, strolling along and talking to the people. There had been perceptions among some folks in Vatican City that John Paul I, also known as the Smiling Pope, was wide-eyed, good-hearted, but weak and out of his depth in the Machiavellian environment of the Vatican. Now, remember, the Vatican, um, it's Vatican City, and it's not just the church, the, you know, St. Peter's Basilica or the palace where the Pope lives. It's a whole entire city, state, country unto itself. It has its own, you know, um, post office. It has its own police. It, it has a population. And, um, uh, well, maybe one day I'll get more into it, but this is about John Paul I. It's very involved. It's very complicated what goes on in Vatican City. Let me put it that way. And they didn't think that this guy, um, this new pope, was sophisticated enough to be hanging in Vatican City. Many said that John Paul I was nothing more than a country pastor crushed by the magnitude of the papacy and the Byzantine intricacies of Vatican City. However, the day after his election, Luciani studied the Annuario or the Vatican's yearbook to familiarize himself with the organizational chart, then set about taking things into his own hands. He met regularly with the Secretary of State, and he also had meetings with all the cardinals who headed Vatican departments. He was not overwhelmed. John Paul I took up his new role with the same shrewdness and intelligence he displayed over a decade as the Patriarch of Venice. Luciani's humility had nothing to do with fecklessness. He could summon a steel backbone when the situation called for it. And for instance, there's this story about Luciani when he was a bishop. One of his parishes chose a new pastor without consulting him. He responded boldly by entering into the church and removing the Eucharist refusing to return it until the situation was resolved. In a similar vein, when some priests in Venice openly backed the liberalization of divorce in defiance of church teaching, Luciani disbanded the group and suspended the priests. And then there's the famous moment in 1972 when Pope Paul VI visited Venice and put his stole around Luciani's shoulders. Many observers thought Paul was indicating his successor. And maybe he was. But also, if you take it in context, it's, he was probably more showing support for this embattled patriarch. Overall, the image of John Paul I that emerges as that of a pastorally-minded figure who tried to hold a divided church together. And before I continue with the rest of the story, I feel a need to explain Vatican I and Vatican II and the differences between the two. So, Vatican I and Vatican II are names given to consecutive ecumenical councils that were held in the 19th and the 20th, 20th centuries respectively to explain the relation of the Roman Catholic Church with the rest of the world. The two councils were held almost a hundred years apart and under two different popes, of course. Pope Pius IX ratified Vatican I and Pope Paul VI ratified Vatican II. Vatican I is famous for the principle of papal infall infallibility and 
it stated that salvation is only available to those inside the Catholic Church. Now, Vatican II comes along in the 1960s, and the Catholic Church opened its windows onto the modern world, updated the liturgy, gave a larger role to lay people, introduced the concept of religious freedom, and started a dialogue with other religions. Simply put, Vatican II was created to help apply the truths of Christ to modern day life. The 20th century had brought a new way of life to the world's citizens with such changes as World War II having such a great, huge impact on even the smallest communities. And with Vatican II was the declaration that salvation was available to all. Vatican I received, or I'm sorry, Vatican I conceived of revelation as the revealed doctrines which are found in both scripture and church tradition. However, with Vatican II, they said that revelation was seen as God revealing himself rather than doctrines. Basically, Vatican I is extremely conservative and regal, while Vatican II is more progressive and proletarian. After Vatican II, instead of enjoying the expected renaissance, the church seemed to fall apart. Priests and bishops rejected church teachings, convents and seminaries emptied, and lay people were thrown into confusion. And here's how John Paul I works into all of this. His niece, Pia Luciani, recounted a time shortly after the Second Vatican Council, which took place between 1962 and 1965, when he was still the bishop of the Vittorio Veneto, when he said to her the diocese actually contained people of three councils. And this is how he explained it. The first of the three councils were stuck at Vatican I. The second of the three councils were those who gladly accept the aggiornamento of Vatican II, seeing it as a grace to improve the relationship between the church and the world. And a third group, which was a little group who make the council say things that in reality it does not say, according to John Paul, planning a radical rush toward another council that still does not exist, a Vatican III. Her uncle, she implied, was in that second camp, but didn't want to just write off either the first or the third. Again, he's trying to unite a broken church. The primary news flash from that interview with his niece was another bit of continuity between John Paul I and the popes who followed him, a desire to heal the schism with the church's traditionalist wing. He wanted to move forward, but he, he wanted to make peace with what had become before. John Paul I hoped to address the problem as soon as possible, he said, because, I quote, Unity of the church concerns me more than many other things which the press seemed interested in. Another hallmark of the John Paul I papacy may have been a desire for greater financial transparency. There is the story of a scandal in which two of Luciani's priests were held or caught, I'm sorry, they were caught embezzling church funds. Luciani suspended the priests and wrote an open letter to the diocese explaining the situation, frankly acknowledging that, quote, two of my priests have done wrong. While voicing compassion, he let a criminal investigation and prosecution run its course. You don't see that much anymore. He sold off property owned by the diocese and also requested additional help from parishioners in order to balance the books. Again, that Vatican II in action, getting lay people involved, 
Another controversy was born from a comment Luciani made before the conclave of August 1978 when he congratulated the parents of the world's first test tube baby. It led some to believe that he would have overturned the church's ban on in vitro fertilization. However, John Paul I actually upheld the teaching of Pope Pius XII against mechanical intervention in the marital act. He considered doctors performing the procedure of IVF as potential, what he called sorcerer's apprentices, and that there might arise the danger of a new industry, that of what he called baby manufacturing. Another comment during his September 10th, 1978 Angelus Address, when he was the Pope, he said that God is, in quote, more mother than father. This prompted some to wonder if he shared the objection of many feminists to the church's patriarchal bias and might have reversed the ban on female priests. On the celebrated more mother than father quote, John Paul I may have simply meant to underline God's tenderness and not to dislodge traditional imagery about God as a father or to suggest that God is more male than female, or I'm sorry, more female than male in an absolute sense. When reading everything he actually did say in context, John Paul I doesn't exactly sound like the closet radical many claim him to have been. A Pope who, have, who would have taken the church in a dramatically different direction than the two popes who followed him. Um, John Paul II and Benedict, I think the 14th, they were pretty conservative. And, um, and compared to those two, he seemed pretty liberal. Still, many historians and researchers and authors claim that John Paul I did not die of natural causes, but rather fell victim to a complex assassination plot. If this is true, why? Why would anyone want to murder a humble, well-liked man of doctrinal rigor, leavened by pastoral and social open-mindedness, who left behind a legacy of gentle and compassionate bridge building? Why would anyone assassinate a pope who wanted to mend rifts inside the church while reaching out to the common man? Was he actually a closet radical? some claim him to be or was it because he wasn't afraid to hold wrongdoers accountable in the early morning of September 28 1978 sister Vincenza Taffarel a Vatican housekeeper came across the Pope's lifeless body sitting up in his bed his eyes half closed behind glasses. He wore a gentle smile and was clutching papers in his hands. The initial formal announcement of his death, however, failed to mention the nun's presence in John Paul I's bedroom. In fact, the Vatican failed to mention any concrete information about how his body was found when that initial announcement was made. The details about his autopsy were equally murky. Some claim that there was never an autopsy at all, which brings into question how the Vatican could officially announce a cause of death, which they reported as a heart attack. How would they know that if there was no autopsy? Over time, several subsequent books would claim that there was a conspiracy to cover up the suggested murder of the Pope. They claim that an otherwise healthy and fit 65-year-old man who climbed mountains and had low blood pressure could not have died of a heart attack. And if there was no autopsy, again, how could that claim even be made? Further, why would a nearsighted man who only wore glasses in public so that he could see the faces in the crowds be wearing those same glasses to read in bed. He didn't need reading glasses. And if he were to truly die from a heart attack, 
he would have surely activated an alarm right next to his bed to summon for help. The pain would not leave him with a smile on his face, and he certainly would have dropped his papers, which would have scattered across his lap and onto the floor. Yet they remained neatly in his hands, hands that were clutched tightly around those papers. Furthermore, his sleeves were torn. Popes don't wear torn clothes. They wear pristine garments, even in bed. And his sleeves were torn. Many suspected that the Holy Father was poisoned and they demanded an autopsy be done in a secular hospital in Rome. However, the Vatican refused that request and they immediately embalmed the Pope. If the Vatican had been truthful from the very beginning, conspiracy theories may not have taken hold. That is, if they are merely conspiracy theories. Three sources who researched the death of the Pope provided explan their explanations of and questions concerning his death. There's um, a doctor named C. Francis Rowe who was interviewed as an expert. The cause of death, according to the Vatican, was myocardial infarction, in other words, a heart attack. Dr. Rowe explained in simple English what a heart attack is. A main branch of the arteries that nourish the heart, the coronary arteries, get shut off. These arteries provide the muscle of the heart with oxygen and nutrients. If there's no blood getting through, the muscle will die. Infarction simply means death of the muscle, the nutrients being blocked off. Dr. Rowe combined a possible death by heart attack with the position in which the Pope's body was found. Would the official cause of death then still be possible? Remember that the official version is that the Pope was found sitting up in bed, his eyes slightly open and wearing glasses as if he were reading the documents he continued to hold in his hand, plus that smate, sorry, that faint smile on his face. Dr. Rowe's reaction to that is uh, this quote. There is something very suspicious about the posture described, whatever the cause of death. Dead bodies do not sit up smiling and reading in death. People have been known to die in their sleep, but I have never known or seen anybody die in this way in the middle of an activity like reading. Now the crucial piece of information, Dr. Rowe estimates that the Pope would have had enough time to sense that something was very wrong. He would have made some sort of effort to get out of bed or to get help. Dr. Rowe said, I've never known anybody die unresponsive to what was happening to them. Life, in my experience anyway, doesn't just stop. And someone with a massive heart attack or a massive brain hemorrhage moves around and makes some reaction because they would be in mortal discomfort if not severe pain. There is always, unless they are already unconscious, some reaction to or awareness of what's happening to them. The same would go for any of these poison theories. Had he, meaning the Pope, been poisoned, he would be conscious of some terrible mortal trauma going on. And that closes the quote. As it turns out, Albino Luciani had a retinal thrombosis three years before his death. Dr. Rowe then combined this news with that of the Pope's reportedly swollen ankles. And Dr. Rowe says, for some reason, his blood was abnormally, abnormally coagulable. The other main cause of swollen ankles would be congestive heart failure. But this is usually accompanied by breathlessness and consequent difficulty with mobility. Not only would his legs be full of fluid, 
but also his lungs. There were no reports that the Pope had had trouble breathing. In fact, earlier on in the evening that he died, he ran down the hall. To Dr. Rowe, that ruled out congestive heart failure. One explanation that could fit this is if the Pope was taking an anticoagulant and had skipped taking his medicine, then his blood would have been more coagulant than before. That could have put him at an increased risk for another thrombosis. On the day of his death, Albino Luciani was walking around in the papal apartment to aid his swollen ankles. While walking, his secretary, John McGee, reported hearing him coughing harshly, and when he checked up on him, the Pope told him that he felt a sudden pain in his chest. Dr. Rowe explained that by walking, the Pope probably dislodged a thrombus, which is another word for a clot. This clot then traveled upwards to his lungs, causing this sudden chest pain. The clot, however, was not big enough to cause instant death, but it is an indication supportive of a massive and fatal pulmonary embolus that came later in the evening. But why didn't McGee remind the Pope to take his medication or urge him to see a doctor who would have been readily available to him? The secretary to the Pope must have been a decisive man who always did the right thing by his boss, even to the point of insisting he see the doctor or insisting the doctor come to the Pope and right now immediately. So let's talk a little bit about Bishop John McGee. McGee was secretary to Pope Paul VI. He was asked to stay on by Albino Luciani. McGee's first remarks about Luciani are telling for the attitude many in the Vatican seem to have about this new Pope. McGee found him timid, awkward, out of place, and not familiar with papal protocol. Instead of helping transition the cardinal to become the pope and the head of the state, some chose to mock him. Others chose to remain silent and inwardly criticize Luciani for being clueless. If this was the prevailing mindset within the Vatican, the pope may have been a victim of neglect, if not murder. From McGee, we learned about the pope's daily rhythm, he went to bed around 9 p.m. He woke up and, and got up around 4.30 a.m. He had a bathroom routine while he uh, listened to English language courses on tape. And then by 5.30 a.m. he was in the chapel for prayer time. Then Secretary Don Diego Lorenzi joined him for mass at 7 a.m. And then they all, McGee, uh, Lorenzi and the Pope, they all had breakfast together. In the morning, the Pope would work, break for lunch around 12.30 p.m., take a short nap, and then take a two-hour walk in the rooftop gardens. Walking was his exercise to help his swollen ankles. The day the Pope died, he took a short nap, but he didn't walk on the roof. He told McGee he wasn't feeling well. McGee offered to call the Vatican doctor, um, a doctor named Buzzanetti, but the Pope said no, he'd walk inside the apartment for a bit. At this point, McGee didn't tell anyone that the Pope didn't feel well. No heads up to anybody about anything. After Luciani became Pope, Dr. Buzzanetti uh, spoke to Luciani's doctor in Venice, but according to several biographers, no immediate exchange of medical files took place. This would be incomprehensible as we are talking about the Pope. McGee heard the harsh coughing, as mentioned before, and he rushed to the Pope. Luciani was standing near a table explaining about these chest pains he had just had. The Pope told McGee to get Sister Vincenza Taffarel as she knew what to do. 
Sister Vincenza Taffarel had been with Albino Luciani for more than 10 years at that point, and she was a trained nurse. And the nun said that this had happened before, and she grabbed something, something like an inhaler, and she tended to the Pope. McGee said that he wanted to call the doctor, but the Pope refused, so McGee just left it at that. However, this is something a doctor should have known, especially since we're talking about a 65-year-old man who has sudden chest pains, not to mention he's the Pope. Despite the fact that the Pope told McGee he didn't feel well, McGee left the papal apartments for about two hours without another secretary present there to watch over John Paul I. And, you know, in those two hours, maybe he could have gotten sick again and maybe somebody would have seen that and maybe some action would have been taken, but instead he was left alone for two hours. Now, around 6.30 p.m., Cardinal, Cardinal Villot came to visit the Pope. Villot tended to overload people with work. Despite his earlier complaints, the Pope worked with the Cardinal until about 7.35 p.m. The other secretary, Don Diego Lorenzi, arrived at the papal apartments after the Villo meeting. McGee then returned and finally told Lorenzi what had happened with the chest pains. Lorenzi also wanted to call the doctor. They both asked the Pope how he felt. The Pope answered he was well and he just wanted to go for supper. Neither of the secretaries called the Vatican doctor. Now, I seem to be belaboring a point, but I still find this strange because they had just lost Paul VI. And Luciani was a 65-year-old man who was complaining about unexplained chest pains. Even though he looked the picture of health, something was going on. And just the, the month earlier, they had lost their Pope. So that's why I, uh, not only do I not get that, but a lot of biographers, you know, whether they believe he was murdered or not, they just don't get that. But anyway, as, as things went, the Pope ate well, said he felt fine, and when Cardinal Colombo rang the Pope, John Paul I ran down the hall to pick up the phone. Again, Dr. Rowe says that that running was indicative that he wasn't having um, heart failure, but the action of running could have triggered a massive fatal embolus. McGee said goodnight to the Pope in the papal study. The Pope picked up a homily, which is a small brochure with a sermon on it, to read in bed. And that, this is something he often did as inspiration for his own services the next day. By this point, it's 9.20 p.m. McGee claimed to have walked into the papal bedroom to show the Pope the two alarm bells right next to his bed. The Pope acknowledged them and said goodnight, and McGee left him alone. Lorenzi left for the evening, and McGee went to speak to the sisters in the kitchen. He reported telling them that he was worried. But again, Sister Vincenza calmed him. She had seen this before, as she, she had said earlier. At this point, one would hope that either or both of them would have shown more interest in the post Pope's health and started asking pertinent questions like, when did each hap episode happen? Like at what times? And how did he feel afterwards? And um, what's his diagnosis? You know, this man needs a diagnosis. What medications was he taking or was he neglecting to take? But they didn't have this conversation. What they did talk about was that how terrible it would be to lose another Pope. They had that conversation. And not only that, but he, with the nuns, checked to see if any Pope ever reigned less than 33 days. That was their conversation. 
McGee left the sisters around 10 p.m. He read and sorted through his papers in his room until about 11, and he retired because he was supposed to be up at 5 a.m. Now, between 11 p.m. and 5 a.m., the Pope died. Now, finally, we have another um, witness here, and her name is Dr. Lena Petrie. Dr. Lena Petrie is the daughter of Albino's sister. She was also the first family member to see the dead Pope. Dr. Petrie paints a more balanced picture of the Pope as a human being. Yes, he was shy, but he was strong. He indeed was humble, but he was determined. She spent a lot of time with him and cared, for, and he cared for her deeply, and she cared for him deeply. He never forgot his humble upbringings. Her mother never, you know, the Pope's sister never received an education. At the age of 11, Lena Petrie's mother had to work to help pay for her brother Albino Luciani's seminary, and the Pope never forgot what his sister did for him. Petrie described her father, her, I'm sorry, her uncle's death in this way. His head turned towards the door and looked as if he had been smiling at someone the moment he died. His face showed no sign of suffering. Then someone gave her a chair and she sat there for about 20 minutes just staring at him. She noted that his sleeves were torn. And then she just had this thought run through her head. I quote, I was convinced somehow in my own mind that he had died working at his desk. Again, those pristine papal undergarments and gowns, a Pope would have never been given torn clothing to wear. So how did they tear? And was her intuition right? Was he sitting at his desk and somehow ended up in bed? Petrie told a biographer that the missing personal items, such as his slippers and his glasses, were not stolen as suggested in other books. She said that um, one of his siblings ha has them. Petrie confirmed Luciani had an eye thrombosis three years earlier in 1975. And she said, this is really significant because it means the blood doesn't circulate properly. She continued to explain the dangers of blood coagulation. It indicates that what happened in the eye could occur in the leg, the intestines, or the pulmonary artery. If there is a precedent, it is serious and one must be very careful because a person can no longer be considered in full health. The Vatican knew this, so how could they have neglected Luciani as they did? Now, remember that Dr. Bolzanetti had spoken to Luciani's doctor in Venice, so he was aware of the eye thrombosis. So critical a detail, yet nobody ordered medical files or copied the medical files to take them straight to the Vatican's medical bay. Luciani was aware a thrombosis could happen again and that he needed to take medications for the rest of his life, according to his niece, Dr. Petrie. Her explanation of pulmonary embolism, however, differs from Dr. Rowe. She said, one is not aware of death with pulmonary embolism. It's a question of a fraction of a second. Dr. Rowe had insisted a person feels it, hence, shows some reaction. Recent studies suggest that some victims feel a dull ache while others experience intense pain. And yet for some other people, there are no symptoms. Dr. Petrie stated that maybe due to stress, Luciani could have neglected taking his anticoagulants. So she knew he had them but why didn't his staff remind him? She also cleared up the fact that Dr. Bozzanetti had never been Luciani's doctor. And according to her, he had never seen him. And she added that, and I quote, he was a Pope without a doctor for
for all intents and purposes. It was only a month, but it was a crucial month. It seems that McGee watched over Pope Paul VI like a hawk and nursed him till his last breath. This same man now hears the new Pope complain about chest pains and then he just goes and commiserates with the sisters about short papal reigns. Is it possible that McGee did check uh, during that night when the lights were still on, went in and found the Pope dead on the floor near the desk? The Pope was then too far away from the alarm buttons near the bed, so that's why they never heard the alarm gone off because he never pushed any buttons. So then how does he get into bed? So let's say that was the possible scenario. Let's say he did, you know, die near his desk. Then perhaps McGee found him that way, then waited for Lorenzi to return. And then that maybe they form some sort of plan. Now this is conjecture, ladies and gentlemen, but maybe they formed a plan based on panic and remorse for the Pope being dead alone on the floor and none of the secretaries having done anything about it. How will they ever explain that? Yes, they knew the Pope complained about chest pains, but no, they didn't give Vatican health services the heads up. Some biographers think that the secretary staged the Pope's death scene. Lorenzi said in interviews that the Pope's backs and back and legs were still warm. That can help ascertain time of death. Then he took off his cassock. The Pope still wore his day shirt and underwear. They ran into trouble dressing him and accidentally tore his sleeves. This is what Dr. Petri saw, the torn sleeves. <clears throat> the men then placed the Pope half-dressed in bed and propped him up with pillows until his chin fell to his chest slightly to his right. To make his death look sudden, they put his glasses on his nose and the homily and other papers in his right hand. Now this, actually, he was holding other papers according to other eyewitness accounts. <clears throat> So both hands had papers. Now it kind of looks like a sudden death where no one else could possibly figure out that anything had gone wrong. Lorenzi was asked if the Pope was really not found on the bedroom floor or the bathroom floor and was he uh, moved to his bed? And Lorenzi said, it is not possible to pick up a dead body by oneself. That was his answer to that. After, um, you know, uh, allegedly staging a death scene, a new run of panic would have set in. How do you eventually tell people that the Pope died? If the Pope died suddenly during his normal routine, then maybe he should, he should be found doing his normal routine. Maybe they thought that if he doesn't show up in the chapel the next morning, that it would set into discovery, the discovery of his body into motion. What ultimately set the discovery in motion was that Sister Vincenza did not leave the Pope's coffee outside of the hallway per the Vatican's official declaration. She actually entered the Pope's bedroom as she always had to bring him coffee and she was the one who found him dead in bed, not McGee. It was Sister Vincenza. There may have been fear that the presence of a woman in the Pope's bedroom would create scandalous rumors. And maybe that's why there was this cover-up, just that fact. This hypothesis continues with the sisters calling McGee and Lorenzi for help. McGee perhaps called the Vatican Dr. Bozzanetti, according to Cardinal Villo and the two secretaries. Bozzanetti sets a diagnosis of myocardial infarction. Remember, Dr. Petrie, the Pope's niece, said that her uncle never saw Bozzanetti, meaning the doctor never examined the Pope. 
Wilsonetti also didn't consult any doctor and declared the cause of death without an autopsy. In the press, the Vatican listed McGee as the party who discovered the Pope dead. Now, even if the Pope wasn't assassinated, the Vatican is not blameless in Luciani's death. They dropped the ball and not tending to its new Pope properly. And then in that sense, they are guilty of neglect. Now, Pia Luciani said that, and she quote, I quote her, the whole family beginning with my father, his brother Eduardo, was never attributed the sudden death of my uncle to anything but natural causes. <clears throat> Luciani said her uncle may have suffered thrombosis um, because he had already had that. You know, again, that 1975 eye thrombosis situation. And she also rejected the idea floated by Lorenzi of a heart attack, insisting that her uncle had, um, he complained of chest pains that the nuns in the household who accompanied him to the Vatican from Venice would have absolutely called a doctor whether he wanted it or not. She had full faith in the team that he brought with him from Venice. The actual cause of death will likely never be ascertained with certainty because there is no autopsy performed on popes in keeping with Vatican protocol. Now, so maybe there was some miscommunication, some neglect um, surrounding the pope's natural death, but the assassination rumors persist. And I'm just going to go over one of these hypotheses because there's many, many books written on this. And there's a few different guesses, but this is the main one. So according to many, many biographers, the Pope had been in potential danger because of corruption in the Vatican Bank. Okay. Um, specifically, uh, one called um, Banco Ambrosiano. That is the Vatican's most powerful financial institution. The Vatican Bank, through Banco Ambrosiano, lost about a quarter of a billion dollars. And this corruption was real. You can look this up. And it was known to have involved the bank's head, Bishop Paul Marcinkus, along with Roberto Calvi of the Banco Ambrosiano. Marcinkus, at the time the head of Vatican Bank, was indicted in Italy in 1982 as an accessory in the $3.5 billion collapse of Banco Ambrosiano. Calvi was a member of P2, and P2 was an illegal Italian Masonic Lodge. He was found dead in London in 1982 after disappearing just before the corruption hit the public. <clears throat> His death was immediately ruled suicide and a second inquest ordered by his family then returned an open verdict. So um, that would have gotten uh, the attention of John Paul I. Other names believed to be um, involved in this. Um, there was Marcinkus, of course. He was the head of the Vatican Bank. And then there was Cardinal Jean Villot, who was the Vatican Secretary of State. And there was Cardinal John Cody, who was the Arch Archbishop of Chicago. They were all involved in this scam. And they also happened to be conspiring with three mafia types, the aforementioned Roberto Calvi, who was a banker from Buenos Aires. There was Michele Sindora of the Sicilian Bank and Licio Gelli, the so-called puppet master. Um, and so a lot of people believe that it was those six guys who murdered John Paul I because he was going to clean house. And it was clear that these six men, Marcinkus, Villo, Cody, Calvi, Sindora, and Jelly had a great deal to fear 
if the papacy of John Paul I should continue, because this was not a guy who shied away from punishing wrongdoers. All of them stood to gain in a, way, in a variety of ways if John Paul I should die. And I mean, there's other conspiracy theories. A lot of people um, point to the CIA because the CIA feared if Nicaragua fell to Marxist Sandinistas, the USA would be looking at a half dozen mini Cubas in Central America. Um, and um, the CIA resolved to destroy John Paul I, according to one of these biographers, because he would destroy a Vatican subservient to the will of the USA. So um, if you look more into it, Banco Ambrosiano um, was caught funneling hundreds of millions of dollars through the Vatican Bank to Nicaragua and Panama to benefit the Contras. And um, the Pope didn't want anything to do with this. So one uh, historian says the conspiracy that planned the Vatican Ambrosiano bank scandal um, and the Iran, or the not the Iran, but um, the Nicaragua um, incident, those were the same conspiracies that plotted the murder of John Paul I. And um, to add to the hypothesis that Marcinkus, um, the head of the Vatican Bank, um, who was also an archbishop, killed John Paul I. Anthony Raimondi, a nephew of Lucky Luciano, in his book called When the Bullet Hits the Bone, which was published in 2019, he says that he helped his cousin, Archbishop Paul Marcinkus, kill the Pope by putting Valium in his tea to knock him out, then poisoning him with cyanide. The reason given was that John Paul had allegedly threatened to expose a massive stock fraud run by Vatican insiders. Raimondi said that plans were also made to assassinate John Paul II had the latter decide to expose the fraud because he knew about it too. Raimondi now says that if they take John Paul I's body and do any type of testing, they will still find traces of cyanide in his system. So um, if that is all true, that John Paul was going to, John Paul I was going to clean house, he would have ended up defrocking guilty clergy, which was estimated to be about 50% of Vatican City. So that is the death of John Paul I and why it's so wrapped up in mystery. Um, However, you know, he has been, um, for Catholics, you might find this um, really interesting. He's been um, beatified, which means he, it was proven that he performed one miracle, um, that of saving a girl from in Buenos Aires um, who suffered from um, horrible illnesses. They said that he healed her. And now they're waiting for an investigation into a possible second supposed miracle that would lead him to canonization. And if John Paul I is canonized, he becomes a saint. So um, to wrap it up, John Paul I's approach to his job was neither the swashbuckling bravado of John Paul II, nor the professorial precision of Benedict XIV. Instead, John Paul I had a breezy, mild, informal style one arguably well-suited to the personalistic temperament of the postmodern era. And I think we kind of see that with Pope Francis today. Um, so one more story before we end. Um, St. Peter's Square, August 22nd, 1978. Our new Pope, John Paul I, delivers his first Angelus address. At the end of his speech, he overheard a little girl who had been sitting on her father's shoulders exclaim, Papa, I understood everything. And that was his gift, to put complex things in a way that even a little child could understand, which is how Christ taught the gospel. So, um, bedtime stories from the acoustic bookshelf. I'm going to read a short quote from the Illustrissimi, 
Letters from John Paul I, which was written by the then Albino Luciani. When I am paid a compliment, I must compare myself with the little donkey that carried Christ on Palm Sunday. And I say to myself, if that little creature, hearing the applause of the crowd, had become proud and had begun, jackass that he was, to bow his thanks left and right like a prima donna, how much hilarity he would have aroused. Don't act the same. Sognadoro, Papa. Until next week, arrivederci.